Hey, would you grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, verse 20. We're going to read 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship, this is at the last Passover feast, last week of Christ's life, worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So as we come to this section that we just read, it is right on the hills of the triumphal entry where Christ is coming to the city. Uh, he has been celebrated, some of it authentic, some of it may not have been authentic just because of the confusion. Many of them had a very high expectation that his coming would mean that he would overthrow the Roman government and he would begin to restore the nation back to its prominence. And so, so some of those on that day when he came in and they're taking their cloaks off and they're putting palm branches down and they were quoting psalms and they are celebrating... No doubt some of it was authentic, but there would have been also just a, a big mix of the group that had Rome on their mind and wanted Christ to deal something and had this big expectation for a while that he would do that. And so some were ready for a Messiah that would rescue from sin, and then some were ready, and probably the majority were ready for a Messiah that would restore the nation um, once again. And so as things kind of calmed down after the triumphal entry, there are some Greeks, the text tells us, who have come to Jerusalem to worship during that Passover feast. And they want to have an audience with Jesus. There's probably some very heavy things, important things on their heart. We'll talk about them more in just a moment. And so they come and they desire an audience with Christ and they want to see Him. They want to talk with Him and, and, uh, and probably multiple things that they have on their heart in regard to Christ. So they have this meeting desired and Jesus is just going to start talking he's not going to find out why did you want to come what's your question there were some things heavy on his heart in the reality of them coming these Gentiles coming during this significant Jewish feast which is very interesting in the midst of this Jewish feast these Gentiles are coming wanting to worship and so Christ will begin to speak to them about death and dying and the importance of that and the significance of it. And he will begin to define the requirements to follow in this kingdom and to be a part of this kingdom. And so there are many on this day in the text who have expectations of Christ. And he does this then, and he does it now. Is sometimes we, and I know I do, I have an expectation of what I want him to do, and I will pray and I will ask. And yet he, at times, because his way is higher... And his insight is better. It's the best thing is not to answer what I want, but to lead me another direction because he always knows what is best. 
And so it's not that there's anything wrong in my heart or your heart about that. We are to come to Him and lay these things before Him. But many times there are much more important things that we need to hear. And that's what happens in the text here. And we'll, again, talk more about that in a moment. So sometimes we have expectations of what we want Him to say, what we want Him to do, how we want Him to operate. And sometimes it can be actually very different than what we want. He will speak and He will do uh, something in a different way. And we will see... This week and next week, we are called to live as Christ followers a different life in the midst of a culture that is quite confused about what truth is. And we live in such a day and time where this is such so confusing and just all the stuff that we are bombarded with that is called and labeled truth, but it is lies and not truth. And so that's why it's important for us to understand the requirements that he has for us and so as christ lived we are to live and we will see this week and next week um when i originally put this together i was going to do 20 through 26 and it was about 22 pages worth of notes and i thought you didn't want to be here until about three this afternoon or if you do want to be here till three this afternoon i guess we can meet in my office the rest of you can go eat hot dogs and hamburgers or something um, so I've divided this up um, to 20 to 24, and the next week we will do 25 to 26. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about these Greeks that come. Why is this significant? And I want to talk this morning about the Son of Man and His glory. What displays the glory of Christ more than anything? And Jesus speaks about that today, and we'll talk about that today and next week. Uh, next week a little bit more practical in regard to our life and what we do in response to what he has done but let's first of all look at 20 through 21 read that again with me please and let's talk about the seeking heart of humanity to worship now among those who went up to to worship notice that they've come up to worship were greeks these are gentiles these are not jews These are Greeks who have come up to worship Yahweh, to participate in the Passover feast. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. One of the things I want to point out as we begin this morning is that all over the planet today, in this room this morning, anywhere you want to go, worship is happening and taking place. It's either being done right in regard to worshiping Christ and His glory and who He is, or there are people today worshiping Hindu gods. There are people following their way of life, or there are people worshiping money, or whatever the case may be. Worship is happening, but there's only one authentic way to worship, and that is to recognize the glory of Christ and to worship Him. And so so the reason our hearts seek God and seek worship or seek to find meaning. It's not always God, but seek to find meaning is that God has put something inside of our hearts. And Solomon in his infinite wisdom, well, not infinite, so Jesus has infinite wisdom, but Solomon in his great wisdom of being here on the earth came to a place of understanding insight. And so he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Here is why the heart of man is constantly seeking. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And also, He has put eternity 
into man's heart. So the reason that we seek to find meaning and seek to find truth is that we're different than the animals. You know that, right? That we're different than the animals. I love our animals, but animals, sometimes humans aren't real smart, but animals have not ever learned in the history of the world to look both ways before you cross the street. They just don't. They should have conferences on this. Talking about looking this way, and if a car's there, you wait, but they don't. So, so we're different, and one of the unique ways that we are different than the animals and all of creation is that God has put in our hearts eternity. We are going to live forever in one of two destinations. And when the heart doesn't find Christ and it doesn't, it's not coming to that relationship, the heart seeks so many other things and worships many other things. And so in our text here, we've got some Greeks. We don't know anything about them. We're forced to kind of speculate about them. We don't know if they live in Israel and working there. We don't know if they've come from other countries. We don't know anything about them. But we know this, that they've come to this Passover feast to worship. They have come to worship. They have come to give their life and to bow their life and to worship. And so, so who are they? And they've come at a very strategic week in the history of the world. This is the week in just a few days that the Son of God is going to die on the cross. And so this is an incredibly important week. And they have come to worship during this week. So let's ask, who are they? Well, one possibility is that they are Greeks who have converted to Judaism. They have embraced it. They are worshipers of Yahweh. They have been um, baptized into Judaism. And so that's, that's a possibility. A second possibility is this, is that they are like many of us were. They were lost people, didn't know the Lord, Gentiles seeking truth, seeking to find meaning, and, and their heart was guiding them. And they've come to Jerusalem during this time to worship, to understand, and so that's a possibility. A third reason, and most likely the reason, is that they are Gentiles who have heard of Jesus. Maybe they've been somewhere in Israel where they've heard Jesus teach. Maybe they've been present when Jesus has healed someone. And they couldn't get an audience at that time. And now they've come at this big feast and they've come to Jerusalem. They've seen Christ come into the city riding on the donkey. They've seen the incredible celebration that's there. They find out that Jesus has some disciples. They go to the disciples and say, we would like to have an audience. We'd like to talk to your master. And so they go to Philip. Philip has a Greek name. So most likely they find out about Philip. He's got a Greek name. They probably can feel like they can connect with him more. He's from Bethsaida. They come to Philip, and Philip's like, I don't really know what to do about this. But they tell him, uh, we wish to see Jesus. And I love their request. This request is so biblical. It is so simple, and yet it is so profound and so powerful. They don't want to meet with the Pharisees. They don't want to meet Lazarus, who's just been raised from the dead. They don't want to talk to Peter. They don't want to talk to Simon the leper. They want to meet Jesus. And they want to get in His presence and spend some time with Him. And unfortunately, in our world today, when you look around in Christian circles, there is a subculture that's a part of 
the church in the West where people follow preachers and authors or musicians, and there's nothing wrong with learning from people, but we need men and women and audience with Jesus. That's who we need to spend our time with. So we ought to learn, we ought to read, but never at the expense of reading the written text and the scripture that has come for us. They don't want to just stand and look at him and stare at him, but I have to believe they've got some heavy things on their hearts. And they know that Jesus probably could answer those things about life and faith and that are there. And I love what we see of them. They find the disciples. They seek an entrance and an encounter with Christ. And secondly, they come humbly, not demanding. They don't come and say, hey, we're Greeks, we're Gentiles. Tell us how to meet with your master. We are wanting to meet with him. But they come asking, look, we would like to have an opportunity, if we could, to talk with him. And there's no doubt that his words, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus had impacted their life and it caused them to come to this place to come to know him and to spend some time with him. This is really significant what Christ is about to do. He has been for quite a while now, probably at least for the last six months, privately telling the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to die, I will rise again on the third day, but I'm going to be mocked, and this is what's coming. This is the first time that we see today that he speaks this publicly outside of this small group of disciples. And so he's going to make it known, not only to a small Jewish audience, but on this day he's going to make it known out loud to a Gentile audience and to a Jewish audience that he had come to die, and he had come to give his life and to, to lay his life down. And so I want, to, I, want, I want to put three verses together. I want us to read them again so that we can see what John is doing here under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's going to show us the Jewish response from the religious leaders. And now he's going to show us the Gentile response, at least with these Greeks. So look with me, 19 through 21, and then we're going to go to the main heart of what Christ communicates here. Let's put this together. So let's look at the Jewish or the religious leader's perspective during this last week, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, that you are gaining nothing. Look. And again, this is coming off the hills of the, of the celebration of him coming into town. The world has gone after him. None of the Pharisees were going after Christ. So they're looking at, look, everybody's going. And now on the heels of that, verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So the religious leaders, the Jewish audience, has rejected Christ. The leaders have. And immediately on the next verse, John lets us in on an insight in the midst of this last week, in these last remaining days, that Gentiles were seeking Christ as well, wanting to have an audience with him and wanting to talk with him. Look at 22. So Philip, most likely based in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, this is what it says. You remember he sent them out two by two. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so these Greeks come to Philip and he's got in the back of his mind, okay, Jesus told us 
not to talk to the Samaritans, not to talk to any Gentiles, just to go to the lost house of Israel. He's like, I don't know what to do about this. And so Philip goes and he finds Andrew. When he finds Andrew, he communicates to Andrew, these guys want to talk with the Lord. What do we do about this? And so Andrew, because this is his practice, we'll see in just a moment, he tells Philip, well, let's take these guys and let's, let's go tell Jesus about these guys that they want to meet with them. And I think it must have put a smile on Jesus' face when they came and said, hey, some Gentiles are here that have come to worship at the Passover and they'd like to talk with you. You see, his work was not just for the Jews. His work would be for the whole entire world. It would be for all nations, all people groups, all tribes, all languages. It would be for everyone. And so likely Philip is unsure. He finds Andrew, brings Andrew in on the situation, and they go to Jesus and bring the guys with them. I want to talk about Andrew just for a moment. His life is fascinating. We see him four times in the Gospels. This is it. Don't know much more about him other than these four things. He's the younger brother of Peter. Who do you think got most of the tension in that family? It was not Andrew. Peter, loud, boastful, strong personality. But Andrew practiced some things that were pretty amazing. In John chapter 1, Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. Jesus comes walking by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Andrew and another disciple of John the Baptist start following Jesus. Jesus notices and senses they're following him. He turns to them and says, Hey, what do you want? Well, we'd like to know where you're staying. We'd like to spend the day with you. And Jesus invites them, Come with me. You can see that. They spend the day with him. And Andrew, is, he's hooked. He's like, okay, this is the guy, this is the Messiah, this is the one that we are waiting for. And so John 1 verse 40 says this, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, Peter. And he, it says this, he brought Peter to Jesus. We meet him again. In John chapter 6, people have been surrounded by Christ. He's been teaching all day, probably healing some as well. Up to 20,000 people, many scholars believe, have been gathered on the, on the sea of, near the Sea of Galilee that day. It's late in the day. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, these people have got to be hungry. They've been here all day. Send them away. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not sending them away. You find something for them to eat. And Philip, same Philip, is like, are you kidding me? There's no stores. There's, there is not enough money to buy enough food for all of these people. And then guess who enters the story? Andrew. And he's found the smartest person in the crowd that day. It's a boy, and he's brought a lunch. He knows that Jesus is very long-winded. He teaches all day. He's been there before with his parents. And he's brought a lunch. He knows that the only, I didn't make it last time, about passed out. So he's brought a lunch, and Andrew brings the boy to Jesus. Jesus gets what the boy has. He raises it up to heaven, and he prays and he blesses it. And this unbelievable miracle happens. Andrew found the boy, brought him to Jesus. Andrew was also probably very inquisitive in Mark chapter 13, during the last week of Jesus' life, he's been teaching about the end times and all of these things. And they're, they're like, okay, 
we got some more questions about that. And so Mark 13, 3 says this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew came to Jesus and they asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. This is Andrew's life. Bringing people to Jesus. Telling Jesus about people seeking him. What a great principle about our life. What a great way to live our life the way Andrew did. So they watch. So <clears throat> Philip, Greeks come to Philip. Hey, we'd like to talk to Jesus. I don't know what to do with this. Hey, Andrew, these guys want to talk. What do we do? Okay, let's take them to Jesus. They go to Jesus and they get to Jesus. And these guys have been probably longing to talk to Christ for a while. And there's a great principle here to learn. He doesn't do this all the time, but sometimes God does this. So these guys, are they're there, they're ready to talk, and Jesus is like, no, 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 you're not going to talk. I'm talking. And they, they're, they're probably ready to, to just let it pour out, and, and Jesus begins to talk. And he begins to talk about the most significant thing that has happened in the history of the world. He begins to talk about publicly to a Gentile audience and to a Jewish audience that he came to fall to the ground to die, to rise, to offer life. And the fruit of that work would be to offer life to them and to us and to those who come after us who enter into a salvation relationship with Christ. So they've come to talk. He comes to talk. And I know he loves our prayers. Take our prayers. Pour them out to him. But sometimes he may say, no, let me talk. And just get in the word and read and let him speak. Listen, be quiet and listen and not just talk. And so, again, he loves to hear us pour our heart out to him. But on this day, he wasn't really initially interested in what these guys had to say and what was on their heart. He wanted to tell something that was more important than their questions. And sometimes there's things more important than our questions. And that is him speaking and calling us to see that He must be the very center of our lives. And so look with me in 23. Jesus is going to give us four things about who He is as the Son of Man and His mission and why He came. So look at 23. And so here, they've come to talk. Jesus talks. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And let's just stop there for a moment. This phrase, Son of Man, was Jesus' most popular way to refer to Himself. It echoed back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There, would have, there was a messianic text that they would have known understanding this. And so Jesus connected His life verbally to this picture of the Son of Man. Listen to Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I saw in night, the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He was unique and, and yet different. Daniel sees this, but he looked like a son of man. And he came and approached the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him who approached the Ancient of Days, who looked like the son of man, 
He was given a dominion. He was given glory and a kingdom. And this dominion and glory and this kingdom was so that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve Him. And Daniel could see that this kingdom is not like the kingdoms that Daniel knew where kingdoms rose up and eventually another kingdom and overthrew that kingdom and then another kingdom overthrew that kingdom. Daniel looked and saw this kingdom cannot be defeated. It is an everlasting kingdom. It will remain and it will be a kingdom that reigns. It shall not pass away and it's kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so they come seeking an audience and Jesus begins to talk and the first thing that Jesus said is this Jesus answered them and said this the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified let me talk about the son of man's sovereign hour this last week that we were reading about here in John chapter 12 was the critical hour for Christ's death to arrive And ever since he died and rose again and ascended, the critical hour for us and his followers is for us to follow him and to embrace and to live our life the way that he lived his life. But for Christ, this hour has come. For the disciples, their ears should have have looked at each other and went, did y'all just hear that? Did y'all hear that? He has changed his communication. He has for three years said these words, it's not my time. My hour has not come. It's not my time. John 2, 4, he says to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In John 7, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple They were wanting to arrest him, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And so now he says this, my time has come. This is the time. And they should have looked at each other, the twelve, and should have said, okay, this is different. He's about to say something really important because he's just been saying over and over, it is not my time, it's not my time. And now he's saying, my time is here. This, again, should have been an indicator, and they should have noted this change in his language. What was the hour that was present? The hour of the cross was present. He had come to this hour to die, and so he tells the Greeks, this is my time. My time has come. Here's the second thing that he speaks about the Son of Man. The Son of Man's hour is here. He would die, and, and I want to talk now because what Christ says here about the Son of Man's glory. So he says these words in 23, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what is the glory of God? When we speak of the glory of God, what are we talking about when we speak of God's glory? God's glory is His essential nature. His majestic, intrinsic splendor that is peculiar and unique only to who He is. His glory is seen in every one of His attributes. So as Father, He's a perfect Father. As the giver of mercy, He's the perfect giver of mercy. As the giver of grace, it is a perfect extension of grace. When He gives forgiveness, it is a perfect picture of what forgiveness 
looks like. When he doesn't blast us because of our sin, it is a perfect indication of incredible divine patience with sinners. And so his glory is the essence of who he is, the perfection of all that he is, and it calls us to worship and to bow. And God's ultimate aim is that the glory of Christ would be revealed to the world. The Holy Spirit's aim is to shine the light and glorify Christ. Christ glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Father. They honor one another. And so this, the nature of God calls us to bow and to worship every aspect of His perfections. And so in this context, though, I want us to notice this. Christ is speaking about a unique aspect of His glory. And the unique aspect of His glory is this, is that Christ would get the glory and the great glory and the most beautiful aspect of His glory through His death on the cross. This is where we see the fullness of the display of God's love, the fullness of the display of God's mercy and His justice and His perfection. We should fall to the ground and bow before He who bore our sin and died in our place. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. If you want to see who Jesus is and the greatness of His awesome, majestic glory, the best place to look is the cross. And that's what Jesus talks about here. He is immensely glorified in the work of the cross. This echoes back to John chapter 7, verse 39. Listen to these words. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet, listen to this, was not yet glorified. Now did he have glory before the cross? Absolutely, he's God. But in the great work of the cross, The fullness of the display of the glory of God in Christ was on the most full display in what he did and what he accomplished on the cross. And so Jesus says, now the time has come for me, the Son of Man, to be glorified. You will see the greatness and the glory of who I am as the Son of Man in my dying. At the end of the week on Thursday evening, He will be in the upper room and he will pray this prayer in John 17, verse 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes. And I can imagine just being there and watching this and listening to this. He lifted up his eyes and he said these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And throughout all of eternity, I have incredible news this morning to remind us of. We will live in the light of the glory of the Son of God who died for us. We're going to get to heaven one day, and we will not have, a need, new, need, have the need of a sun or the moon. We will live in this majestic city, lit up by the glory of the light of the Son of God, the majesty of His glory. We will live in that light For all of eternity. But the fullness display of that is not there, even though that's going to be incredible, what we're going to see and live in light of. 
But it is seen when he died on the cross. And so, listen, don't discount, hold high these words of Christ. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to fully display and to reveal the majesty of his glory. And he will get the greatest glory, and it comes through death. Hebrews 2.9, listen to these words. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Cross-centered. Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he did that, what did God do? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everything in heaven, everything on the earth, everything under the earth would exalt the one who died. Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus. Why? He is the founder, author, writer, perfecter of your faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the death, cross-centered, despising its shame, and is seated in glory at the right hand of his Father. One more. I could go on all day, by the way, about the cross. Ephesians 1.20 That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In case you missed it, I want to make sure you don't miss it. The fullness of the display of the majesty and the glory and the greatness and the awesomeness of Christ is seen in the cross. God dying for his enemies. God dying for people who could only offer him rebellion. This is all I can offer you. I got a sick heart that's deceitful at every turn and this is all that I can do. And I deserve your wrath. So I want to I point out just for a moment three ways in which we ought to see the glory of Christ in the cross. And again, I could go on all day long through every book revealing and talking about how His majestic glory is seen in the work of the cross. But I want to give us three. First one is this, and I think these will be up on the screen for you if you're taking notes. So how does Christ get great glory in the work of the cross? The first way is this. The cross shows Christ's glory by revealing that everyone, all people, must come to Him for salvation. 
You can't go anywhere else. So He gets the glory. If there's salvation, it's come because of Jesus. So whether Jew or Gentile, all must come through Jesus and His substitutionary death in our place alone. There are not many ways to God. I'll say it again. There are not many ways to God. There, are, there is one way to God, and that is through Christ. Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation and no other name but Jesus. Here's the second reason Christ gets great glory in the cross. The cross shows Christ's glory by destroying man's ability to boast. He gets the glory in salvation. One of the greatest chapters about our salvation and the wisdom and work of God is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is a great, great chapter. Let me read some verses out of this. The cross shows Christ's great glory by destroying man's ability to boast. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Listen to this. Why did he do that? Here's what Paul writes. So that, no, absolutely not one, no, zero, 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 zero. Add up all the zeros, it's zero. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So there's not anybody in the room, there's not anybody who's ever lived who can say, look what I did, look at me, I earned salvation. Look what I did. No one, no one can say this and testify to this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then listen to verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. And because of Him, because of His death, you are in Him. You are in Christ Jesus. And so we are in Him today, not because of us, but because of Him. And so if there's boasting, where's the boasting? Where does it rest? Where does it go toward? It goes toward Him, not ever toward us. And so Paul says in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, you boast in the Lord. And so every Sunday we come this morning, right now in this room, this is what we do. Not to us, Lord, but to your name be glory. You did this work. You gave me the power to make this great confession. You did the work. And so I cannot stand in your presence and point to me and point to anybody else I point to you and so he gets the great glory in the cross in that he alone is the one who brings us into relationship and we cannot boast in his presence there is no believing without his work and what ultimately is boasting it is a pointing to ourselves which in salvation we cannot do Nobody is allowed to do that. Here's the third thing. In the way the cross shows Christ's glory. The cross shows Christ's glory by revealing that He is the perfect revelation of God's love. And He's also the perfect revelation of God's justice and God's work of justice and mercy. We love this 
verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him, through the son, people would come to faith. This is a great one. Love this one. Can never grow tired of this one. Romans 5, 8. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. We couldn't breathe. We couldn't come alive. We couldn't point to ourselves. We couldn't do anything. And in that condition, he died for us. Justice says we deserve wrath. And he gave Jesus to be the wrath bearer. Listen to this one. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. You want to know what love is? John says, let me tell you what love is. Not that we love God. Let me tell you what love is. Is that God loved us. That's what love is. And he sent his son. Here's a big church word. Y'all ready? To be a propitiation for our sins. You see, Christ's love for us did not come in that we were worthy or offered something special to him. We didn't. We are loved by him in our place of rebellion against his glory. He died for us in that state. The word propitiation, we ought to put it in our language. A lot of pastors have done a bad mistake not using these words or great words. Propitiation means this. Somebody had to bear the wrath. The wrath of God was going to be poured out upon sin and sinners. And so Christ, in his substitutionary death, becomes not only the one in his body to bear our sin, but he becomes the one who's the wrath bearer because of our sin. See, the law had to be upheld, had to be upheld in regard to our sin. So God's solution to this, the fix to this, to this dilemma that we couldn't fix ourselves, was to send Jesus as the propitiation, the sacrifice that was perfect, that satisfied the wrath of the Father for our sin. So the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be lifted up. How did he do that? Through death. And so Jesus says in 24, here's the third thing, is he speaks about his sacrifice. For truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Now, I've got something that I got off the church property this morning. I'll bring it up here on the platform. So just to your right, got the playground, we got the lodge, and there's two really big oak trees there that cause Mark and I headaches all the time because... Those little acorns that fall down, they like to grow into little baby trees. And there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of them everywhere. Well, this is an acorn. And it was up on a tree. And it fell down to the ground. And it was still, got it this morning, still on top of the tree. But it's the seed of the tree out there. Now, at some point in time, several months ago, one of these fell down and somehow got into the ground. And it died when it got into the ground. And when it died, 
and began to disintegrate and decay. Watch, watch this. Remember 1 Corinthians 1? God used the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It is in death that life comes. Now look at the text again. 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, I didn't have any wheat. Nobody's growing wheat, so I had to do this. But unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and that seed dies, it's just going to remain alone. It's going to look like this. If all this acorn does is stay on top of the ground, it just stays alone. But if it goes into the ground and begins to decay and it dies, guess what you get? You get this. Now, when I dug this little tree out this morning, there's just a little bitty tiny bit of the acorn at the bottom of the root. The original seed that started this life had completely died. And in its death, look, life. Now again, watch this. These Greeks have come and thinking, oh, I'm gonna, I have so many questions. And he's like, no, I got something to say. I'm going to go into the ground and I'm going to die. And in that death, there will be life that flows from that and it will bear fruit. There's a picture on my wall that Debbie Sisko gave me, in case some of y'all don't know that, but Debbie Sisko grew up in the children's building. That was her house growing up. And I have a picture on my wall from, I think, the late 60s. And I looked at it this morning. And that big tree that's right there is not there. And it's started at some point in time from one of these falling to the ground, being buried, dying. And this huge oak tree that shadows the children's playground and the lodge stands strong. Because death brings life. And the call for us, boys and girls and students and adults and pastor, elders, life group leaders, the call for us is as he lived his life, so shall we live our lives. We lay our lives down so that His life in us would raise us up to be people who know Him, who stand strong in the glory and might and power of His name. And so Jesus tells them, listen, I'm going to fall. I'm going to die in just a few days. He's given this imagery. But if I just remain alone, then there's going to be no life, but I, I will die. And in that, there will be there will be a death and there will be a life that comes and much fruit. And much fruit will come from that life. And the application for our life is to, to be reminded of what Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Praise His name who gave his life for me. Wow. So he speaks of the Son of Man and the sacrifice, and here's the last one. Kind of connected with it, but he says this, but if it dies, if the seed dies, it 
bears much fruit. As the grain of wheat must go into the ground to die, so would Jesus be put into the earth to rise again and to conquer death. And Jesus understood that his death would bring life to many people. And look around this room this morning. A lot of us are gone because of July 4th vacation and all that stuff. But look, just look around the room, just the, the remnant that's here. We are the fruit of what took place 2,000 years ago. God's son died. He rose. And the fruit is more and more and more followers. This is the next verse. I read it. Hebrews 2.9 earlier, but listen to Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, everything exists for his glory, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, listen to these words, perfect through suffering. It's through his suffering and through his death that we have life. I want to close with this. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 7. I want to show you the future fruit of Jesus. What's going to happen in the future? Well, the book of Revelation gives us some glimpses into that, and it gives us an incredible, beautiful glimpse. Revelation 7, we're going to read 9 through 12. Don't start reading yet. Can I talk to you just for a second? Look up here. Uh, I don't want you to get ahead of me. Um, I know you've read it before, but right now, don't get ahead of me. I love the Great Commission call to take the gospel to all people beginning here to the uttermost parts of the world. I love the Great Commission call. It's the great call that he's entrusted to the church. And it's hard. Christians have been trying to extend the gospel for 2,000 years now. And there are still about over 6,000 people groups that don't have the gospel message yet. And we've been at this for a couple thousand years now. So the question to ask is, is it ever going to get done? It's an overwhelming task. And I have some good news. It gets done. And Revelation 7 tells us it gets done. Look with me. After this, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number it was uncountable number from every nation notice the word from all tribes not most but all tribes all peoples all languages and what were they doing they were standing before the throne and before the lamb they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and of the Lamb. And it just creates this moment in heaven. And all the angels that were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing. Listen to these words. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So be it. And I have great hope this morning that as we embrace the task to continue to take the gospel from the neighborhoods to the nations, That in the future, the Great Commission is accomplished. That all tribes, all languages, all nations, all people groups, there will be a representative before the throne. And John got this unique insight to see that the gospel message at the end of the first century, as he has this vision that is given to him, is accomplished. And so the future fruit of Jesus is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing just looking around in this room that we are part of the fruit of, of the life of Christ dying, being buried, rising in faith in Him, His work that no one would boast. We are the fruit of that work. So, these Greeks might have looked at each other and went, wow, wasn't, wasn't really ready for that. But they needed to know that it wasn't about they're seeking it was about him they needed to hear what he had to say and he to understand how this life is going to come it was going to come in a death it would come in a death let's pray